0: Thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. Reformed churches are sometimes accused of being rather stoic in their worship. Some might accuse a Reformed church as being one that quenches the Holy Spirit. Is this claim really fair? Do Reformed people really desire to quench the Holy Spirit? Why do Reformed people have such a high view of the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments? Does the Lord really work through such means? please join us and be edified as we consider the Lord building his church through the means of grace in our series titled, Why Such Means? Well, as we've heard sermons on baptism, and Lord willing, we'll hear another one on baptism next week in the morning. But as we've heard many sermons on baptism, I thought we kind of touched on it last week. So I wanted to just jump to the Lord's Supper when we think about the significance of the means of grace and what the Lord's Supper means. Now remember, as the Belgian Confession lays out the sacraments, the sacraments are not uh, given to us because we are so strong in our faith or, or uh, those who are so significant, but in fact it's because of our, our weakness in the faith, that, that we are crude as the Belgian Confession reminds us. And so it's showing another way in which God condescends to meet his people so we understand the gospel. Now, when we know of baptism as being a sign of passing into the sea, passing into death, emerging triumphant in life, so the Lord's Supper is something also that communicates uh, our communion and our identity with our Lord. And so why, why do we want to see the Lord's Supper as being so significant? And I guess we're not going to touch on this so much this week, but, you know, why, why do we call it the Lord's Supper as we gather together? I mean, what's so significant about uh, this sacrament as the Lord clearly has instituted it here as we find in Luke's Gospel and all the Gospel accounts. So I want to just focus on this verse because many times we just see the Lord's Supper as our Passover. uh, And so we just see the Passover Lord's Supper as a direct one-to-one correlation. And I think a lot of times we we miss the bigger picture of what's going on here. So look at Luke 22. We'll see first or ask first, what about the cup? What about the new covenant? And what about the blood? Uh, These are the things that Christ calls our attention uh, in this verse as we uh, consider verse 20. And so first then, what about the cop? We consider the the Lord's Supper and what the Belgic Confession is teaching us. It's teaching us that the Lord's Supper nourishes our spiritual life. Uh, Calvin, uh, when you read Reformed theology and the Lord's Supper, it emphasizes how it nourishes the life of the elect, right? Those who are not the Lord's people, they take it unto their condemnation. So again, there's that twofold nature to this sign. But the Abel to Confession, I like this language where it says, to represent to us the spiritual and heavenly bread Christ has instituted an in earthly invisible bread as a sacrament of his body and the wine as a sacrament of his blood so the Belgic Confession, when you look at Roman Catholicism and even Eastern Orthodox, they're starting to criticize more of what the Reformed view. If you look at Josiah Trenham's Rock and Sand, uh, he's written a book criticizing uh, the Reformers. And so definitely you can see where the Eastern Orthodox are starting to come out uh, and get a little more aggressive against the Reformed faith. And, and one of the things Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox would say about us is that our our sacrament makes no sense. We're just mere memorialists. And and what that means in that statement is that the Lord's Supper is just a mere sentimental thing that we do. There's really no nourishment in our view. We don't believe that we're really fed by Christ. And so they'd say that really there's nothing going on in the Reformed view of the sacrament. The Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic, they, they would nuance it a little different. Uh, Both of them do believe that Christ is present, that his body is present in the bread, and his blood is present in the wine. Uh, The difference would be, when you look at the Eastern Orthodox theology, they would say that there's no particular time in the sacraments when this happens. Uh, For them, they would say that when the Divine Liturgy starts... Uh, that's when we're called into the presence of God, into the presence of heaven, and that's when you have Christ really communing with his people and the elements transforming into Christ. Now, I mean, there's a lot of issues I certainly disagree with, and I think in our last week we'll probably interact more with with that. But what I'd say simply is there really is a, a difficulty in accounting for Hebrews, uh, and understanding what we went through in Hebrews where you have that wilderness motif, right? So we understand we have Christ, but we're not in the fullness of glory. Yes, we're called before Mount Zion, but we're not in the fullness of glory. And, and so I, I simply assert that, and I would appeal to Hebrews making that the case. Uh, we don't have the tangible religion that the Eastern Orthodox want us to have, and, and I get it. it it's... Uh, being very charitable to their tradition, I'm not persuaded by it, obviously, but being charitable to it, I would say, sure, it's nice to have something where you don't have to walk by faith. You, you have tangible stuff. You have a priest standing before you who claims uh, to be in the succession of, of the patriarchs. And so you can understand there's just something really tangible, something that reminds you of the ancient church. Uh, the reality is, I don't always agree Uh, with what they say of the one tradition. But anyway, I'm getting off track and, and starting to borderline rant on the Eastern Orthodox, which is not what I wanted to do. Getting into the Roman Catholic view. So the Roman Catholics would believe that when the priest would consecrate the elements, right? So when he stands above them and prays over the elements that's when the elements change into the body and blood of Christ. So so they believe at that moment it goes from bread and wine to being the body and blood of Christ. And so that's where the Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, would disagree. Roman Catholics would see it definitively as a sacrifice. Eastern Orthodox kind of depends who you talk to as to whether it's a propitiatory, um, meaning a sacrifice that makes payment for our sins. Uh, They would say, well... It's in the Eucharist that we're once again made worthy to come to God. So they might be a little uncomfortable saying that it's a sacrifice, but you really look at the substance of what they're saying, and yeah, there is a re-sacrifice of Christ, is what I would argue, when when you look at their liturgy and what they're saying there. Uh, So we can try and do nuances, but again, I I do think that they're not as different from Rome as they want to claim they are. So that's kind of the context of what the Belgic Confession is trying to differentiate us from. They're saying we don't believe that it's a mere memorial. We believe that we're fed spiritually through this sacrament as the confession goes on. And it says he did this to testify to us that just as truly as we take and hold the sacraments in our hands and eat and drink it in our mouths by which our life is then sustained so notice And this is, you know, you can go in Calvin's Institutes and find this same language. That is basically, as we are sustained by the earthly elements that are tangible, they're communicating to us that we are sustained by Christ as it goes on. So we truly, we receive into our souls, and I love that language, for the spiritual life, the true body and true blood of Christ, our only Savior. And notice how we receive these. We receive these by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls. So getting into that language, the Belgian Confession wants us to understand that there really is a nourishment and a feeding that's going on. But as we take hold of Christ by faith, as Christ is sacramentally united to the sacrament, which is what we talk about, a sacramental union, that he's the one who nourishes us in his spirit, and so our, our actual souls are built up. And again, it's, it's like baptism. Remember we talked about how people get really uncomfortable when you say the spirit works through the sacrament of baptism. Say, oh, you're saying baptismal regeneration. You say, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. We're saying something different. What we're saying is that as we see baptism done, we, we are thinking about uh, moving into death, being emerged uh, from the basically the pit of hell, the pit of death, and emerging triumphant in Christ. Um, and so you can almost argue the sacrament of baptism is more for those who witness it than for the infant who receives it. Because the infant, you know, is just kind of upset. Here's some guy, I just wake up, had a nap, and he's pouring water on my head and I have no idea why. You know, it's kind of the infant's understanding of it. But the reality is that it's something that even with her children... We remind them, you are baptized in Christ, you bear the sign of Christ. And so uh, we can exhort our children in light of that, using it as a means of grace, as Paul uh, does and to the church, as you can find the prophets doing with circumcision, a call for us to have a tender heart to the Lord. So anyway, we, we're going through the different ways in which we see the feedings. So now dealing with the cup and, and the nature of the sacrament, and again, we'll uh, get into this probably in a couple weeks as to why I still prefer the language of the Lord's Supper over Eucharist. So, if you hear somebody say Eucharist, even Herman Ritter Boss, who's a Reformed writer, when he writes about the sacrament, he'll say Lord's Supper, Communion, and Eucharist, and use all those terms. So, this isn't just a Roman Catholic term or an Eastern Orthodox term. And what Eucharist simply means is it comes from the Greek word of giving thanks. That's all it means. It just means thanksgiving. Uh, so it's, it's not anything that's really controversial. It's just calling attention to the reality of the, the sacrament as a thanksgiving offering uh, that we are joined to Christ and we commune with Christ and we come to the Lord's table. So when we look at that, I, I think it sort of limits... The other side of the sacrament, which we see the sacraments having that two-pronged message like the gospel. Embrace Christ, nothing to worry about. Don't embrace Christ, you have a lot to worry about. Uh, His coming again is not going to be a very good day for you. And that's what the sacraments point out. Uh, Baptism, you've died and you've been raised to life with Christ. Lord's Supper, you are those who have been cut off in Christ. You have life in Christ. Proceed in that confidence don't have christ well then you become like the bread and wine and separated you become like the egyptians you know swallowed by the sea so the sacraments have that twofold message as well so this is why when we just say eucharist we kind of miss the the other side of what's going on in the lord's supper as a warning but again if it's eucharist or funeral dirge and i have to make a decision i'd probably go at eucharist but my preference is still uh, lord's supper uh, which we'll get into more next week, specifically with the supper and the banquets. But going on then, when, when we think about Christ taking the cup, two times here uh, we find Christ taking the cup in the Passover. We have verse 16, verse 20. Uh, two times he takes a cup. One time he takes the cup. The other time it's after the eight. He takes the cup in verse 20. Now there's, as you can imagine with theologian, there's debate, uh, which cup is this? Uh, There's actually four cups in the Passover that would go on. And these cups are as follows. You have the cup of sanctification, the cup of plague, you have the cup of redemption, and the cup of praise. So in carrying out the Passover, you would have a different interaction, a different narrative that goes along with each stage of the Passover, what the cup means, what the herbs mean, what the food means. The reality is, when, when I look at this, and again, you, I, I'm going to spare you all the debate. I can go through all the different nuances, but I don't really want to cure your insomnia this evening. Just the, the nitty-gritty of it and the simple answer is, Luke's not specific. And, and that's the answer I give to this. Luke just tells us cop, right? So there's, the implication is there's two cops that Christ is reaching for, and each of these cops is calling attention to himself. And if Luke really wanted us to know which cup uh, is, core, is correlating or, or relates to that particular cup, he'd tell us. Uh, Luke is detailed enough in his writing. And that's one of the things in Luke's gospel. When he leaves out a detail, a lot of times there's a reason for that. And what would we do? Well, we would start arguing about whether this cup is significant or this cup significant, which is kind of what we already do. But if we knew specifically which cup, Uh, we would probably be arguing about different things and lose track of the significance of what's going on. So what Luke wants us to understand is that Christ is calling attention to a cop and to the cops that are before them. And so it could also be the implication it's all four cops that Christ is fulfilling, which is also pretty likely. But whatever the case, as we look at this, what's going on? Why does he do this? Well, you can notice that in Matthew's gospel, he gives thanks before the cup. Either way, it really doesn't matter. The reality is, what is Christ doing? Well, a lot of times when people look at the Lord's Supper, they say, well, this is just the Passover. Okay, well, there's elements of the Passover. But when Christ picks up the cup, there's more than just the Passover that's going on here. Uh, There's a couple things that that we notice. Uh, That's, the Passover would point specifically to the deliverance from Egypt. That's the basically the liturgy that's prescribed, or the order of the Passover that Moses prescribes in Exodus 12, as to how the Father and the Son are to relate. And even there, there's some development that you can find with the Passover that I don't think is outside the realm of what Moses is prescribing. But in the case, you you have that interaction. It's tied to. Uh, their deliverance from slavery specifically. But here when Christ takes a cup, he's tying this cup to the new kingdom that he brings, which we'll get into more specifically in a moment. He ties it to his own blood, not to the blood of the Passover lamb. And so right here you, you have this declaration that, that Christ is, is tying this cup in redemption to himself and not the Passover event. That's very important, because as the disciples are celebrating the Passover with the rabbi, which is what would happen, you'd have a rabbi, have his group of students that would celebrate the Passover, but you would follow the liturgy accordingly. So when Christ is changing up the liturgy, I mean, it'd be pretty surprising if the disciples aren't looking at one another and probably waiting for Peter to pipe up and put his foot in his mouth once again. But we don't have any record of that. And so the disciples, it seems, are going along with this, but probably confused. What are you talking about, Christ? You're, you're, you're off the script, but I don't know. Rabbis do what rabbis do. Maybe there's something new going on here. But Christ also uses the language of the fruit of the vine. Now, the fruit of the vine in verse 18, in the context of this, Right? So he says, um, I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine till the kingdom of God comes. So there's something even more distinctive being set up to the cup. So what's this fruit of the vine? Well, you think about Moses in Deuteronomy 22, verse 9, and I think this is an echo back to that. And the echo there is that the fruit of the vineyard is not mixed. The, the ideal is that the fruit of the vineyard is pure. Uh, there's nothing that, that compromises it. Isaiah 32, 12 calls us to our attention as well. You think also of, of the vine where you think of, you know, the, from the Lion of Judah or from the tribe of Judah. You think of that, the donkey being tied to the choice vine that the Messiah is going to ride uh, into Jerusalem. That, that again, there's that association, the vine, the grapes, the wrath, and also the purity of the people. And so what Christ is talking about as he picks up this cup is that this cup is not just a, a, a cup of the Passover or one of the cups of the Passover. Christ is a fulfillment of this whole Passover sacrificial meal. So the, the whole promise of redemption to establish a pure people who are cleansed and washed is what Christ is pointing to with the fruit of the vine and this cup that's going on. It's Christ. Who is doing this? And we also think about the cup because as Christ goes on in the context here and he does his prayer, what does he pray? Father, if it be your will, remove this cup from me. Is Christ scared of the wine? Well, most likely not. He tells them to prepare the Passover and as they prepare the Passover, they're going to use wine. He's not scared of the wine. He's scared of of the identity of what the cup means. It's a cup of wrath. He's speaking of a violent death. That's what's being predicted here. And Christ knows that as he drinks of this cup with his disciples, his fate is that his blood is going to be poured out of his body. Now, as you know, when that happens, that usually doesn't end well for someone. Uh, Usually it ends in someone dying. So Christ, in doing this, is saying to his disciples, I'm bringing about the purification of the kingdom. I'm establishing the promises of God. I'm enduring the wrath of God. And I'm going beyond what Passover pointed to. I'm going beyond what even the sacrificial system pointed to, to the reality of what was promised to Abraham that I'm the one who's going to walk the blood path, right? So there's a lot in this cup. It's not just Passover, and it's not just sacrifice. It's Christ drinking of this cup, confirming the promises of God. Now, going on, Christ speaks of this cup and the identity of this cup being poured out as a new covenant, right? So when we think about, as the Belgic Confession is reminding us, it tells us, Our Savior Jesus Christ has ordained the sacrament of the Holy Supper to nourish and sustain those who are already born again and engrafted into his family. So the Belgian Confession is saying this is why we say that those who are adults are those who are able to discern or to examine themselves and to know whether they're in or out of this kingdom or have publicly professed that they're part of the church. So that's why we say there's baptized members of the church, uh, that they're identified, they're part of the covenant community. Uh, the apostle Paul exhorts children to obey their parents because as part of their covenant identity, they're exhorted as their parents. And so you have that exhortation there, given there. But there's also this distinction that Christ is making here, that there is this cup and this this sacrament that's representing the establishment of this new covenant. So this is also telling us that we're moving beyond the Passover. The Passover is grounded in that particular time when Israel is redeemed out of Egypt. And that the Gentiles had to go through circumcision and be identified as one of the Israelites before they can participate in the Passover. You have specific laws about sojourners not participating in the Passover. And as we hear this, it's also important because people say, well, you know, the reform just say that we do this in remembrance, and so the reforms just are memorialists. Well, we we don't deny that remembering Christ establishing the new covenant is part of it. We, we certainly affirm that. We are called to reminisce, to contemplate, to think about as we partake of the Lord's Supper and, and think about who Christ is, what it means that he's established a new covenant, what it means that we're new covenant believers who have been established in Christ. And as we hear this, we also hear the very same thing in the Exodus. What is it? It's a memorial feast. That's what it's identified as. So just... Saying it's a, a, a mere memorial isn't really slamming anyone. It's just what we even have seen in the Passover as a precedent. When they did a sacrifice, you're also thinking about, my goodness, I should be the animal on the altar. I'm not the animal on the altar. God's pretty gracious. I'm not the one that's receiving the consequence for my sin directly. And so, yes, there is something conscious going on, something we contemplate even as the Spirit nourishes us. But I want to talk about the New Covenant, because when you interact with people of more of a Baptistic tradition, they read New Covenant, and they see it as something that's new. So you have the, the Old Covenant that's physical, it's fleshly, the New Covenant is spiritual. And I think this is one of the unfortunate things of language, that it's, it's hard to, to take the Greek and bring it into English, because it can be new in the sense of something that was never before. It, it can have that rendering. It can also have a rendering of something that's superior, something that's established, something that's confirmed. And so a lot of times when we read New Covenant, uh, sometimes it, it might be more helpful in our reading of the text to think of renewed or confirmed covenant might be another way of saying this Uh, because to say the new covenant and to say this is something new would mean that there's an ignorance of it and again ignorance is not stupidity it just means you don't know something so that would be well we, we didn't know of a covenant that was coming and now all of a sudden christ is telling us about this new covenant that that wasn't there before but when we look at the old testament that's not a fair rendering Isaiah 42, with the first servant song. The servant does his mission, he accomplishes his mission, but what is he doing? He's going about to establish, confirm this mission, doing what God has set out to establish this new covenant. You go on and you find in Isaiah 65 and 66, the promise of the new heavens, new earth. So there's there's this promise that's being refreshed of this whole recreation and this movement to the Lord establishing us in this place of glory. So this isn't a new promise, but you go on even Jeremiah 31, 31. You know, a, a lot of Baptists will take you to that text. You look at Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. You go, oh my goodness, they won the day. Uh, this is a case, the Old Testament's fleshly, New Testament's spiritual. But if you look at Jeremiah 31 in the context, what, what's Jeremiah talking about? Israel's a national people have failed. They've, they've messed up, which is what we've heard in Hosea. And what's the Lord going to do? Well, his purpose hasn't failed. What he promised to is going to come up to pass. And as his promise comes to pass, he's going to give new hearts to his people, Right. You can read, circumcise your hearts in, in the Old Testament. When you read Jeremiah says, circumcise your hearts, that's a reminder that there's a call to see there's a spiritual tenderness, the spirit's at work, it's just not confirmed. And so when, when Christ joins here with his disciples and he speaks of this new covenant, he's not saying here's something that's, that's radically different in the sense that you've never heard of this before. It's Christ saying, this cup, as I drink of it, is is that symbol, that sign that I am one who is going to confirm the promises of God. You know, you think even of Nicodemus and his confusion in John 3, and I think it's very important to think about Christ's subtle rebuke to Nicodemus when he's talking about being born again, having the spirit, and Nicodemus is saying, what are you talking about? None of this makes sense. And what does Christ say to Nicodemus? Are you a teacher of Israel? And and, and you don't know these things? In other words, he's saying to Nicodemus, this theology should be intuitive to you. You're a teacher of Israel. You should know the Old Testament. This is all throughout the Old Testament. And so I think that's John 3 is another verse, or passage I never really thought about taking a Baptist to uh, until recently. And that's actually a really good passage. Because Christ, in his rebuke of Nicodemus, is saying this is so obvious in the Old Testament that you you should just intuit it. You should just know what I'm saying. You should track it and say, oh, this is the Messiah, the one who confirms the covenant promises that God has made. And so that is what's going on here when Christ drinks of this cup. He's saying, here I am as the one who's going to drink of the cup of the covenant I am going to be the one who's going to receive the wrath. I will pour out my blood and I will confirm the promises that God has made. What he said to Abram, Genesis 15, the Lord passing between the pieces of animals in the blood path, Christ drinking the cup is Christ saying, here I am. What was pictured there in a vision to Abram, giving him the assurance that God is going to take the curse of death so Abram and his people can have life. Christ is saying, as I drink this cup, this is a symbolism that I am the one who is doing this so you can have life and have an identity and a place at the heavenly banquet. And so Christ then is not just remembering Passover. He's not just fulfilling Passover. He's not just fulfilling the sacrificial system. Now, all that's part of it. So I'm not saying that stuff's abstracted. Don't, don't even think about that. That's included in this. But you have to understand the significance of Christ drinking the cup as he's drinking the cup of wrath of God so we don't have to endure the wrath of God. That's the significance of the drinking of the cup. Now, lastly, what about the blood? Well, this is where we we turn to the blood of the covenant. And certainly the cup and the blood go together because you think about the cup of wrath and the pouring out of his blood. But when we think about this blood, the blood is significant because even the Belgic says at the table, he makes us enjoy himself as much as the merits of his suffering and death as he nourishes, strengthens, and comforts our poor desolate souls by the eating of his flesh and relieves and renews them by the drinking of his blood. So in the Lord's Supper, the drinking of the blood is significant because that is us partaking of the life of Christ. That's what's being symbolized there. So sacramentally, symbolically, as the Spirit nourishes our soul, we are being nourished by the blood of Christ. Now, how do we get here? Well, when you think about the ancient church, and yes, Reformed people do study church history, contrary to what the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics say about us. But in the ancient church, Christians were viewed as cannibals because of their Eucharistic or Lord's Supper liturgies. That when they heard of this eating of the body and blood, they're like, what are these people doing? They're cannibals, right? So that's one of the charges that's stirring up the people. But what are we doing with this? Why, why do we use this language and why do we keep using this language? Well, think about the author of Hebrews and what Hebrews tells us about blood. 9 verse 20, the blood of the covenant. The covenant. And so this is recalling the people of Israel um, being splashed and, and washed in the blood of an animal, the shedding of the, the blood to cleanse the vessels so those vessels could be brought into the temple in the presence of God. And Hebrews is saying that we are actually washed in the blood of Christ. And so there's a washing element. You think back to Genesis 49, the washing of his garments in the blood and how you're going to have those blood stained garments. But going on then in Hebrews 10, verse 29, the Son of God, and we have then the warning of profaning the blood of the covenant. And so the Son of God is a one who establishes a covenant as a one who sheds his blood. And so this is that again, that ratification confirming of the blood of the covenant. Lastly, just one other example from Hebrews, you think of Hebrews 13, verse 20. We have the blood of the eternal covenant that establishes us, the good shepherd of the sheep and the blood of the eternal covenant, right? And so it's in the shedding of his blood, we are assured that this covenant and the promises of God are ratified and confirmed. That's what's being symbolized here. So it's Passover's part of it, sacrifices are part of it, but it's more. As so the whole covenant of grace is confirmed, ratified in Christ, shedding his blood. But as we think about the blood, and we think back even in Genesis 15, and again, you uh, think of the Lord making the promise that he's going to bring Abram to heaven, give him a son, continue the seed of the woman, and bring about the victory of covenant history. And Abram goes, well, how do I know this will be? And the Lord says, well, go get the animals, and he takes the animals, he cuts them in half, and, and the blood flows between them. And, and in the ancient Near East, that, that, that covenant, a, a lesser king would be expected to walk between those animals. And if he failed to pay his taxes or his dues, uh, or if he crossed the suzerain king, the suzerain would say, basically, you cross me, you fail to do this, you will be like those animals. Well, when Abram walks between, or, or when Abram expects to walk between the animals, but he sees God doing it, as manifested in a smoking oven, the fire pot, sort of being the legs of God, uh, walking between these animals, that this is telling us that the Lord's going to pour out his blood and offer this definitive sacrifice. So this is what Christ is doing when he drinks the cup, and he says, this is my blood. He's saying, this is the blood of the new covenant that that establishes and confirms my promises. But Abram was never told to drink the blood of the animals. In fact, when we look at the the laws of Moses, it's very specific Then we have this this context in in Deuteronomy 12 of how you can eat the flesh, where it's kind of interesting to take the Seventh-day Adventists of Deuteronomy 12, where somebody might have the desire to eat an animal. And there's very specific commands there in Deuteronomy 12, verse 23. You can eat the flesh, but you can't drink the blood going on when we think about leviticus 17 sacrificing of animals blood needs to be drained you cannot drink the blood why what does leviticus tell us because the blood is the life of the animal and and we can think about this in our day and age right i mean we can uh, find and read of people eating certain organs of certain animals drinking blood of certain animals, thinking that they're going to get the power of that animal infused into them and and they're going to be stronger. This isn't some survival thing in an extreme situation. It's generally very wealthy individuals that can buy exotic animals and drink the blood or, or harvest and eat the organs. And so what Leviticus is doing is Leviticus is saying, I don't want you to look to the sacrifice. I don't want you to look to the animal and say, the animal is the thing that's going to give you life. Because as you go on, you look at Leviticus six twenty 7, verse 6, there's provisions for the priest not to drink the blood, but to eat of the sacrifice. Now, this isn't every sacrifice, but you can see this in some of the sacrifices. And, and the point of that is, again, you're identified with an animal. So as a priest, when you take the life of the animal, the animal's burned, it's being sacrificed, it's that reminder. <laughs> I took the life of the animal, I should be on that altar Uh, I'm the one that should be burning up and I'm the one that should be sacrificed. But the reality is, it's that reminder, the animal did not give life and the animal did not appease God because it's pointing to Christ. And so this is where the Belgic Confession is always driving home, eating and drinking, being fed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why when Christ commands us to drink his blood, What's the symbolism there? He's not trying to get gruesome. But he's reminding us not only is this blood, the the blood that ratifies and confirms the kingdom of God, the animal's not going to give you life. The animal's just a, a, a provisional reminder that the sacrifice is coming. Drinking the blood of Christ is that reminder that life only comes in Christ. That's what Christ is teaching us. Life only comes in Christ. Not in ourselves, not in something else. And so the drinking of his blood symbolically is that reminder that as we're united to Christ, we have life in him. That's why Christ gives this command. And so in conclusion then, what do we do with this supper? Is this a re-sacrifice of Christ? Is this a mere memorial? What, What do we believe as Reformed people? Well, the Lord's Supper communicates to us that we are continually nourished and sustained by the one time sacrifice of Christ. And that's what we really want to drive home as reformed people. It is that one time sacrifice of Christ that sustains us. If Christ needs to be re sacrificed, it means that his work is not very life giving, it means we're not very secure. It means that if you have the Lord's Supper and then something happens in the week and you have like a tragic accident, you might not be in glory because you haven't been brought back to the living God through the sacrament. And that's taking the sacrament, no matter how gracious the Eastern Orthodox want to sound, where no, it just brings you back into the presence of God or how reassuring the Roman Catholics want to be and say, no, this is just the mass and the assurance that you're going to undergo the process of justification as Rome will be more explicit than Eastern Orthodox, even though I don't think they really disagree all that much, even though they may try and nuance it different. But the point of what we're making as reformed people is we want to say that in that one-time sacrifice of Christ, we are sustained. in the Lord's Supper, by the grace of God, is continually nourishing us in the power of his spirit. Now it does so sacramentally. And in the power of his spirit, we are built up and edified and encouraged in our Christian walk We're thinking about Christ. We're thinking about our communion with our Savior. We're reminded that he is the one who is a true life-giving spirit. We're reminded he doesn't have to be sacrificed again because his one-time sacrifice is sufficient. He's seated in the glory of heaven. The covenant promises of God have been confirmed. The blood has been shed once for all, and we have definitive life in him. So as we come together for the Lord's Supper, Let us not see it merely as a sentimental memorial. It's part of it. Do this in remembrance of me, certainly. Christ says it, but that's not all of it. The Lord also sacramentally feeds and nourishes us in the power of his spirit, encouraging our soul in a way that we don't always fully comprehend. As John 3 says, the spirit blows like the wind. We can't control the spirit. But yet we know that the Lord uses a means. And the usage of that means he promises to build up and encourage his people. So let us not look to the sacrament superstitiously, but let us look to, as the Belgic reminds us, that things signified, actually using uh, the language of the church fathers, that we're looking to Christ, the reality of what stands beyond it. And we're looking to the one who is truly the life giver. Let us then see ourselves and proceed in the confidence we are his redeemed people, made alive in his spirit, proceeding in the confidence of our Lord and Savior, who has confirmed and ratified the promises of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged to this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is B-E-L-G-R-A-D-E.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshiping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.